In Chicago, addressing the needs of people with severe mental illness requires a collaborative effort among various stakeholders, including government agencies, healthcare providers, community organizations, and advocacy groups. Often people with severe mental illness face difficulties in addressing their physical health needs, as well as finding and maintaining stable housing, which can have harmful effects on their well-being and overall recovery process. So by addressing the social drivers of health for those with severe mental illness, we can cultivate more opportunities for recovery, stability, and overall well-being. In the second installment of HC3's two-part episode in honor of mental health, Awareness Month, we sit down with another impactful leader in the mental health sector in Illinois. Mark Ishog is the CEO of Thresholds, one of Illinois' largest providers of mental health services, offering a comprehensive range of support and treatment options for individuals with mental health conditions, including supportive housing. Under his leadership, Thresholds has been at the forefront of innovation in the mental health field, implementing evidence-based practices and developing collaborative partnerships with various organizations and stakeholders. Mark's commitment to mental health advocacy and his dedication to improving the lives of individuals with mental health conditions have earned him recognition and respect within the field. This is the HC3 Podcast. We're your hosts, David Smith and Megan Phillip. The presenting sponsor for the HC3 podcast is Rosecrans. Rosecrans is a private, nonprofit organization and nationally recognized leader in treating mental health and substance use disorders for children, teens, young adults, adults, and families. With over 60 locations in Illinois, Wisconsin, and Iowa, their physician-led team has developed an innovative, multidisciplinary, outcomes-informed approach. Rosecrans's comprehensive continuum of care includes individual, group and family therapy, residential care for teens and adults with on-site detox services, intensive outpatient care and continuum continuing care, family support and education, virtual outpatient services, alumni programming and parent support groups, and prevention and early intervention education for students and communities. Since 1916, their unmatched legacy as a proven behavioral health care leader is a source of hope and strength to those they serve. Rosecrans served more than 50,000 people last year. Mark. Tell us about Thresholds. Thresholds. We were founded in 1959. We've been on the streets, if you will, for a long, long time. It's funny that this morning I was listening to an interview with the executive director from 1975. For whatever reason this morning, WFMT from the archives released an interview with the executive director of Thresholds from May of 1975 talking with a client next to him with Studs Terkel, like one of the most famous Chicago interviewers, journalists of all time. So anyway, that's not related to anything, but just that for 60 years, 65 years, Thresholds has been providing home, health, and hope is our tagline to people with serious and persistent mental illness. In the early days, we were like a clubhouse where people, very young people, it turns out, were coming to what was called the mansion on uh, Lincoln Park, Lakeview, I think it was the street in Lincoln Park, the people who were hospitalized many times and really having no place to go. And uh, the National Council of Jewish Women, five women from Chicago wanted to do something to address this problem. So they created thresholds. Today, we're 1,200 employees in five counties serving about 8,000 people. 
uh, again, mostly with serious and persistent mental illness, people who would otherwise be institutionalized in jails and prisons and nursing homes, on the streets and in and out of hospitals. So our so-called secret sauce is that we go to where people are at. Now, and while we have centers, and I'll talk about that, mostly uh, what we do is outreach. So I have six, 700 outreach workers that are out in the community as I speak, delivering comprehensive community mental health to wherever people are, wherever they are at, including on the CTAs and under bridges and in parks, in hospitals and prisons at their home, wherever they are, we go to them. The model's called assertive community treatment. And um, we've been doing this for a long, long time. And that's, that's what we do. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit, and I'm gonna come <laughs> back. How's that work funded? Oh, uh, very carefully. Very carefully. <laughs> the funniest thing in the interview of Jerry Dinson this morning was about three quarters of the way through the interview. Studs Terkel asked him, "How are you funded?" And he said, "Every year it feels like a budget crisis." <laughs> Yeah. Which made me laugh. I thought, oh my God, 50 years later. We're still late. there. Right. 50 years later, we're like every May as we're putting together the budget for the next fiscal year, thinking, how do we do this yet again? Yeah, yeah so we are funded uh, mostly through Medicaid and other government grants. So we're a $100 million agency today, and maybe 5 to $7 million is in private philanthropic funds. The rest really comes through Medicaid and uh, a combination of uh, city, state, and federal grants. But our bread and butter is Medicaid, because mostly our the population that we serve is disabled by mental illness, and so everybody, almost everybody, qualifies for Medicaid. I see. So the state is paying you directly. The state is paying us directly, and, you and file claims for certain. Yeah, and and. So we have Medicaid contracts with all of the MCOs, and for clients who are not part of those managed care organizations, uh, we have direct funding from HFS. But everything is, it's basically state funding. Got yeah. it. So kind of distinguish between, t- tell me a little bit about the physical assets you have and inpatients, in outpatient kinds of programs versus the 600 or so outreach workers. Like how right. how does that look across the five categories? Yeah, it's a, gr- it's a great question because um, while I say that we're, we mostly surf outside of four walls, we operate out of about 90 sites. So we have a combination of 90 offices and housing complexes, if you will. We own 40 or 50 buildings, a combination of housing with 50 or 60 individual apartments to eight room, what used to be called Scylla's, very common kind of eight person property very popular in the 70s and 80s and not as much today. But we operate out of Stroger Hospital. We have 24-7 coverage uh, at the uh, ED at Stroger Hospital. And we operate out of what are basically storefronts and 120 South LaSalle and 70 or 80 other places in between. So it's a, it's a complicated business model, as you can imagine, how we serve people mostly through outreach, but then we have 50 housing properties that we own and manage because housing is such an important part of what we do. But we actually manage closer to 2,000 or 2,500 
housing units through a combination of vouchers and rental assistance programs, et cetera. So that, that is definitely an area I want to jump into. I want to, I mean, I have one thing before we go there, um, which is given the size of the organization and the breadth of the work that you all do, obviously prior to the pandemic and then during the pandemic and now through the quote unquote official end of the PHE, the, the end of the pandemic, we've had this workforce challenge across the healthcare industry. I think behavioral health has felt that in a disproportionate way in, in contrast to their um, physical health partners. I'd be interested in just your perspective on, on workforce, the, the state of the workforce and challenges and where you see it going. But Mark, for you, there's one particular wrapper I'd like you to put around it, and it's because I saw you give a talk in Asheville, North Carolina, a couple weeks ago <laughs> to the Addiction Professionals of North Carolina. I think the title of the talk was called Leading with Love. Is, yep. is that right? Okay. Yep. I'd love to just get a sense of, of how you view the workforce challenge, but then what you're trying to bring with your leadership style that you think is maybe uh, flattened out that curve or made things easier for thresholds. So, yeah, the workforce challenge of the last couple of years has been, I would say, nothing less than horrendous. We were actually pretty stable during the pandemic, during the height of the pandemic, through a combination of state commitment to funding us and to uh, the $10 million PPP loan that we were finally able to access, and people a bit afraid to make a move uh, during the height of the emergency. But really, as the epidemic began to wane, uh, and we move into the new phase of the pandemic, we really were struggling, like most healthcare and community mental health organizations, the last couple years. And frankly, if it were not for the enormous rate increase that Thresholds and our partners helped create in the state of Illinois, where significant new resources, like over 180 million new dollars in Medicaid dollars had come to our sector writ large, I don't know how we would be working ourselves out of this workforce crisis. So it's partly a combination of a historic lack of investment in community mental health, and we're sort of changing that story now as we speak, though there's so much more to do. I think chronic underfunding has been a huge challenge. And frankly, the work is just so, so hard. I think it's probably harder than it's ever been uh, because the people that we serve and our partner agencies are serving are more medically complex uh, than they were even 10 years ago, 11 years ago when I started. We had a lot of programs, and we still have a big program where we are helping people that have been in institutional settings for a long time move back into the community. And sort of the characteristics of people in nursing homes and SMURFs, they're called specialized mental health rehab facilities, the, the population in these institutional settings has changed dramatically with much more emphasis on substance use. Mental illness for sure, but much higher rates in use of substances. So that has changed the population and the challenges and the comorbid conditions of the folks that we serve are also more complex. So our folks are just more medically complex. And with the lack of affordable housing in Chicago and increased economic gap between those that have and those that have less has grown. And it's just, it's made the work it's just so much harder. But miraculously, we are uh, today at least probably more stable than we have been in years. The key is 
recruiting people that are really well suited for this work. And you have to have a certain level of built-in resilience, as well as deep compassion for people with serious mental illness and multiple comorbid challenges. And then, of course, the key is like finding these people and then retaining them for as long as we possibly can. And unless we can keep investing in our workforce, meaning that the rates have to go up every year because inflation is, as you know, is at an all-time high, right? We had two years of five or seven percent inflation. Our healthcare costs are going up, our occupancy costs are going up, and the demands that people in the workplace have, which are rightfully so, <laughs> require us to keep investing. So every day is a challenge. And like as my predecessor in 1975 said, gosh, every year there is a budget challenge. <laughs> so here we are 50 years later having the same conversation. But you know, you also talked about management philosophy. And I, I've been doing a talk for a long time called Leading with Love in the Workplace. I hope it doesn't get old to the people that hear it because it sure doesn't get old for me to talk about it. But I first gave this talk called Leading with Love in 2017 a couple of months after a, a very big election in the United States, which changed the presidency and changed sort of the, at least the short-term trajectory of this country. And part of my response to that was like doubling down on love. And I thought like, how am I going to deal with this new reality? And I started writing a speech called Leading with Love. And I thought, wow, this is how I lead at thresholds. And this is how I, <laughs> this is how I want all of my colleagues and sister and brother agencies to lead. So anyway, I started thinking about what's important to me, what's important to the workplace, what's important to the clients, what's important to the organization. And without seeming too simplistic or Pollyanna, I really just so firmly believe that love is the core to what we do. And then all the other stuff, which is so critical, the policies, the procedures, the protocols, the people, the investment, the technology, all of that is so critical to success. But I'm just so convinced that the core is love and compassion and kindness. And that if you have that, then you can just do everything else. You, know, you can I, figure out how to meet that budget challenge every year. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's so intriguing to me because it's, I'm such a believer that um, the professionals, pe people in the workforce, the, the most important currency is often not just the paycheck or the wage. So that's obviously important and that's that's catalytic to somebody being able to pay their own bills and, and live a comfortable life. But I think there's another equally important form of currency, which is somebody feeling safe and secure and, and seen. And to me, love is a predicate for being seen. Seen is right. a predicate for being understood. Understood is a predicate for being accepted and feeling like you belong. And we all look for that in our, you know, the different relational spaces that we hold as human beings. And you know, one of the things I've, I've, and I'm on record about this quite viscerally, in a lot of our industry, you know, we have just taken advantage of the workforce. They are commodity uh, widgets, and we kind of try to get more and more yield out of them without leading with love, leading to being seen, understood, and, and safe and accepted. And so I think the philosophy you hold is is powerful. I didn't realize that it, that it evolved out of the, the last election, but appropriately so. Yeah, well, you know, everybody responds to uh, crisis or dark moments in many different ways, and that's just how I was, I don't know, that's how I'm sort of internally programmed to respond. Yeah, you know, as I say, 
you have to show like you can talk about love and you can talk about kindness and compassion and but you got to really show it you know and not just show it in how you act with each other personally and interpersonally but you show it in wages you show it in benefits you That's show right. it in workplace That's right. comportment because people they want to feel like they belong and they want to feel the compassion and kindness from the CEO and everybody on down, but you need to show the love. And so, you know, that's why we fought so hard for that rate increase in Illinois two years ago, because I said, you know, we got to show love to the employees. (laughs) My philosophy has always been like, every dollar that we raise, every rate increase that we get just has to go back into the employees. Yes, it has to go back into the business and has to go back into the infrastructure. And we have to pay for all the stuff that you don't see, the rent, the insurance, all that stuff. But as much as we can put into the employees' pockets, we do. And that's what I wake up every morning and go to bed every night thinking about. How do I do better by the people that work with me? Because I don't serve clients. I mean, I love our clients. And every time I have an opportunity to interact with our clients and members, I, it's such a privilege to me because I get to see the work through the people that I interact with. But my teams are the ones that are doing the work, yeah. right? So my focus is on them so that they can focus on the client. Well, I appreciate the investment in your employees is another way of thinking about it because you're coming at it from an altruistic and I think a holistic and very genuine place. But as we think about what is the business case to our our workplace, because that's always, we answer to boards, we answer to operational pieces that need to happen, like you said. But at the same time, as we look at this crisis, I see that probably you're not having as much turnover if people are taken care of, paid well, and all of those factors play into a longer game. And then also just the byproduct of that is happy employees and a happy place to work and better care for your patients. Having worked in nonprofit most of my early career, I also can relate. I think every year it's the cycle starts over and it's uphill. It's true for thresholds and it's true for other behavioral health providers that especially as we operate in the nonprofit, it's kind of a joke like we don't want to make profit. It's like, no, we want to make that profit to put it back into Absolutely. the work that we're doing. Yeah, you have to make a profit. We have to try to make a profit every year to put back into our employees, to put into the infrastructure, to build new programs. Yeah. I mean, if you don't make a profit and the costs go up, you have no way to address those costs. If you don't make a profit, you can't give, you know, we just did a couple months ago, uh, 5% across the board increases for every employee at thresholds off cycle. You know, we were hoping to be able to do that on July 1st but we did it March 15th or March 30th because we had the resources, we did budget projections, and we thought we can't wait. We don't wanna wait. If we can put a little bit more money into people's pockets now and not have to wait till July, let's do it. And you know, and people feel it, they feel the love, you know? And that's just not me saying that we love you. I'm showing that love. And it's good business, right? We may be a nonprofit. I've only worked in nonprofit my entire life, except for a short stint at a great place called Ann Sather's, which if you're from Chicago, you may know this restaurant. Then that was 
that was in college, just because I needed to make some extra money, and I loved, but I also loved working there. But my entire career has been in nonprofit for 35, almost 40 years. But being a nonprofit doesn't mean that you're not a business. We are a business, and we run with business principles. And but the profit does not go to shareholders. The profit goes to our employees and and to our clients. You use the term medical complexity two or three times. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the, the flip side of that coin, and I know you'll agree with this, is social complexity. Right? Mm-hmm. Social complexity usually is catalytic to medical complexity. Talk to me a little bit about, especially because of how uniquely positioned you all are in doing this work and going and finding people under the bridges or, or on the blue line or whatever the case may be, Talk to me about your approach to social complexity. You have housing programs. Talk a little bit more about that and how are you identifying other social challenges and then what does thresholds do to try to connect or create resource pathways for people to address those challenges? Yeah. So I, I would say the thresholds has been addressing the social determinants or the social drivers of health since our founding. And nobody was using that term. Since before it was cool to use the Oh, term. my God. Well, 30 like, years before. Years ago. Right. <laughs> right. So in 1959, the founders said, we're basically going to meet people where they're at, and we're going to address the social needs that they are facing. Housing, hunger, education, socialization, some people coming from traumatic backgrounds or violence. So it's it's everything, I mean, as we know now, right, that... The social determinants of health determine something like 80% of a person's health outcomes, and then there's the health stuff that determines health outcomes. But it's um, everything that leads to these disparities, and Thresholds has been addressing them, and we still do. That's what we do today. When we meet people on the streets or on the CTA or wherever we meet them, we never ask people first, like, what kind of mental health services can we provide you? But do you need a coat? (laughs) Do you need food? Can we take you to get something to eat? What's important to you? Well, and a lot of people say housing, food, job. So we focus on all of that. And by focusing on employment and housing and food and nutrition and reconnection to family and friends and building up people's social resilience, this all helps in driving better health outcomes, including physical health outcomes. Though I have to say, and you know this, that one of the challenges for people with serious mental illness historically has been lack of access to quality primary care. Many people with mental illnesses have gotten their primary care in emergency rooms if they get it at all. And so people with serious mental illnesses die 25 years younger than the rest of us. (laughs) This is a national tragedy. You know, and we're lucky at Thresholds that we've developed. We were a pioneer in what is now you know, considered the standard of care, integrated behavioral health, integrated primary care and mental health. And 15, maybe 25 years ago, we developed a relationship with the UIC College of Nursing to create the first integrated behavioral health clinic here in Chicago. And now we have partnerships with Howard Brown Health and Heartland Health, which is now called Tapestry 360, and Aunt Martha's. And just this year, we launched Thresholds Health, a sister agency in the Austin community that will be a full-service primary care provider for anybody like any FQHC, but with a specialty in behavioral health for people with serious and persistent mental illness. And it's, 
It's really exciting. My vision for the future is that primary care, mental health, housing, this is all integrated. And if not with one organization doing it all, doing it in a partnership or co-location with great partners that really care about all of this stuff. I think the lack of holistic medicine, if you will, not even medicine, but the lack of holistic care has resulted in these huge disparities. And you know why the system ever decided that the head was not part of the body or that the mind was not connected to the rest of us, uh, you know, has yeah. gotten us to the situation that we're in today. So there's a lot of people that make a lot of money uh, downstream once the head has produced a, a body with type 2 diabetes, hypertension, CKD, or, or any number of other chronic diseases, right? That That's right. System. And those are the clients that Threshold serves. Right. People with serious mental illness and then everything you just mentioned. Yeah. High blood pressure, diabetes. Well, and you're also doing the work to where you can create disruptions to that path for somebody far upstream. The value you're creating for the, the collective system is it's unparalleled. And yet, in this country, we're really bad at funding those things. Because I, I think one, we're bad at quantifying it, and two, we just have kind of a perverse American ethos around when somebody's in that situation because they made a series of bad choices, we stigmatize them, we write them off, and then we act surprised when we have overutilizers in the ED or in specialty care, and we wring our hands about the system, talk about transformation, and go round and round. Yeah. So, and we just haven't done enough as a sector, as a system, really, to uh, intervene early. Yeah, agreed. A couple of years ago, we found we started a program uh, for first episode psychosis, you know, early onset of mental illness, and we're really struggling with this program, like many of our sister agencies locally and nationally, there's never been a strong commitment in this country on the private insurance side or the public insurance side to deeply invest in early intervention. You know, people have their first episode psychosis, they end up in a hospital. What we know, the science and evidence shows that if you get wraparound services in the community, family, psychosocial education, supported employment, supported education, case management, psychiatry, you know, really intense wraparound services after your first episode of psychosis or breakdown, that you can quote unquote cure mental illness as we know it and stop the foregone conclusion or trajectory into the public mental health system. But we're just not doing enough to make this happen. And this is something that I'm so passionate about. I do not want to leave thresholds until I figure out a way to get the public sector and the private sector to fully invest in early intervention, especially for teens and young adults. Well, consider us uh, co-conspirators. <laughs> oh, good. In that ambition. Uh, sincerely, that's that's the work we, we do in the council. It's the work we do at Third Horizon. Tell me about your housing program. How, how did that come about? How is that funded? How does that play into this upstream work you and your colleagues are doing on the streets? Yeah. So housing actually is, the I would say, the biggest unmet need that we have at Thresholds and probably the biggest unmet need in the city of Chicago and probably in the country. As you know, in Chicago, there are 60, 70,000 people that are estimated to be homeless, people that are on the streets, people that are couch surfing, including thousands of kids that don't have permanent homes that are 
you know, hopefully staying somewhere warm and safe at night, but it's definitely not something that would be considered their primary home. So we have to figure out as a society how we invest in this. I think it's penny-wise pound foolish to not invest in housing. But of course, it takes fee increases and tax levies, et cetera, to pay for this. But I think it pays for itself over the course of many years, improves the quality of life for people that are experiencing homelessness, improves the quality of life for everybody around that's experiencing that. So we struggle at thresholds, uh, though we as I said, we have we own 700 units of housing. We manage another thousand or more units throughout the city and the suburbs, and it's a combination of federal and state and city resources that pay for this. So we're very, very fortunate given the huge number of units that we own and manage. But it's just it's it's simply not enough, and it's so heartbreaking the number of people that call thresholds every single day, and the first thing they ask is. Do you have housing? Is there any housing? <laughs> and and the answer is almost invariably no. Well, and I think about some of your outreach too. So people can come to you and ask you for housing. And, and we also are seeing and tracking this, you know, comparatively to other countries and other cities, they just spend more money on social services in general. And this housing component is something that can help with the physical and the mental health of a person. So as you think about identifying it in the streets and meeting people, I know that you guys also did a lot of work with CTA because I think it's also for the benefit of the city of Chicago to realize what Thresholds is doing through that interaction in the street work that you do, whether it's de-escalating a situation and, and giving that person the resources that they need to continue on, or hopefully getting to housing. So it's like, you know, we have a, a, a an unhoused problem, uh, as it were, that we do have, like you said, 60, 70,000 people that are just nomadic because we can't figure out a solution that's sustainable. But at the same time, not that it's a Band-Aid, but you know, there are interventions that you guys are still providing and you are still providing that piece. And there are other partners taking on that burden too. It just, we don't have enough. Yeah, um, it's just yeah, it's just a question of resources yeah. and resource allocation. And the new mayor, uh, Mayor Brandon Johnson, is absolutely unequivocal in his desire to address this problem. So it'll be really interesting to see over the next couple of years if we can make a dent in the city. Mm-hmm. You know, it's gonna, but it's gonna take a public-private partnership and a lot of political will and sacrifice on everybody's part to make this happen. But I think it'll improve the quality of life for people that are unhoused and the people in neighborhoods that are experiencing people who are unhoused will improve their quality of life. <laughs> so it's, uh, I just feel like it's a win-win. And housing is healthcare. We talk about this all the time at Thresholds. And that's why our tagline, Home Health Hope, you know, starts with home. And I just really believe, and I think the evidence is clear, that until we can make sure that every single person has access to safe, affordable housing, we're not going to have healthy individuals and healthy communities. And to your point earlier, it's just also like, how do we think about what's happening with our youth crisis? I mean, we've called it out as we have a mental health crisis for youth and that is one of the areas that you're focusing on so how do we help further earlier in that intervention to your point how do we interject there what are the things that we're doing to support them early on so they don't have a lifetime of this ongoing instability 
Yeah, one of the things I'm really excited about in Illinois is the work that Dr. Dana Weiner is doing. Are you familiar with her work? I think she's from uh, Chapin Hall. Anyway, she's been working with all the state agencies in Illinois over the last year to figure out how to break down the silos between all the various departments and really create integrated pathways for success for children, and I hope young adults and transition age youth. We talk at a lot of thresholds about the cliff when people age out, if you will, of the DCFS system or the child welfare system, including those with serious mental illness, they often fall out of the system. And there's that really vulnerable age of 21, 22 to 28 or 29 that we're really focused here at Thresholds and trying to keep them engaged in care. Because when they see older people with mental illness, they're like, those are not me. Those are not my people. I don't, I don't look like them. I don't want to be them. I'm young. I'm relatively healthy. I'm cool. So we have a program here called Emerge, which is focused just on that age group. And it is, um, it's really remarkable. And it's again, it's something that I, I'm hoping that we can get the city and the state and the feds to sort of double down on investment into what we call transition age youth. So, you know, there's another program that I'm really excited about at Thresholds I just want to share with you. It's called the Narcotics Arrest Diversion Program. I think this is another sort of exciting thing that we're doing. It's We're working with the Chicago Police Department and the University of Chicago Urban Labs is our evaluator on this. And for people who are arrested any place in Chicago now, it used to be just on the west side, but we've expanded citywide, who are arrested for the sale or possession of two grams of a controlled substance. But instead of being booked and sent to Cook County Jail, they have the opportunity to uh, be connected to thresholds or and connected to one of our partners. It's really a remarkable program. I mean, to me, this is like community mental health and substance abuse at its very best. You know, stopping the prison pipeline, stopping the jail pipeline, giving people a second chance or a first chance maybe even, or a third chance, whatever the chance is, connecting them to care. I always like to say that our narcotics arrest diversion program is trying to create easy access to care instead of easy access to jail. So, you know, it's just, I mean, sort of an example of uh, one of the many programs at Thresholds that is both changing lives, which I love that we do, but really changing systems. I think this is sort of always been my passion is that how do we both improve the lives of people that are the most marginalized and the most vulnerable, the most discriminated against, and at the same time, change the systems so that these folks are no longer marginalized and discriminated against and stigmatized. I love that. There's different types of systems, of course, right? We've got systems that kind of operate with, with public-private sector entities, other CBOs, FQHCs, CMHCs. There's systems that the government dictate and determine how grants are paid, how reimbursements work, how Northwestern or Rush or somebody else might admit or, or discharge and send out into the ether somebody with social complexities. How are you at thresholds? Which, which systems are of greatest interest to you to disrupt, to, to take aim at? And kind of what are you doing to deconstruct the systems as they have been for decades and, and create a vision for how those systems can function in a radically different way in the future? 
Yeah. Yeah, it's such a great question, and there are no easy answers. Yeah, if there were, you know? everybody would be doing it. Exactly. We have to you know, sort of create a different mindset about care and where care should be provided. I mean, I am grateful for our hospital partnerships and our nursing home partnerships and et cetera. But I just so firmly believe that we have to figure out a way to provide effective, efficient, community-based care outside of institutional settings and help keep people in their homes or help transition people to homes. You know, it's just, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of resistance to investment in community care. It's just, you know, it's a long history of that, of that challenge. You know, at the, at the state level, we focus a lot on, I call it the three R's, rules, rates, and regulations. And how do we create systems that are not perpetuated just because they have been this way forever or because there's rules that date back to 1990 or there's evidence-based practices that have been 40 years old but have not been updated to create and to reflect how we operate today. And that's hard work. It's not glamorous work, but we have to just sort of keep at it. I really value our state partners, HFS and DMH and DHS and Super and you know all these great agencies and just continuing to work with them every day by focusing on the clients that we serve and how we can break down both the silos that exist between these places and how we can just make things easier and better and more fair for the most vulnerable. We don't do a lot of work at the federal level, but I'm grateful for our partners like the National Council and NAMI and Mental Health America, too, that are working hard to change Medicaid and CMS and the VA and all for the better. One of the things that I'm really excited about now that might be too weedy for this conversation, but is the the creation of what are called certified community behavioral health clinics. Literally, you know, the next question I was going to ask. That's, you know, we were very fortunate last year to receive two CCBHC grants, uh, one for Chicago and one for McHenry, or another area north of the city that we have been operating in for a long, long time. And, you know, this is the future of community mental health, community behavioral health not just because of the services that are part of it, which include mobile crisis response and crisis stabilization and psychiatry and therapy and case management, all, a lot of stuff that we've been doing for a long time. But the certified behavioral health clinics have the potential to change the way that we are funded and to create an ongoing source of support through what's called a prospective payment that puts us on par, uh, if you will, with the FQHCs in this country, which for 60 years have operated with a very different reimbursement mechanism. I'm looking forward to the day when we have a payment that is fair and equitable for the work that we do and is based on our real costs of doing business and is also tied to outcomes. Yes. You know, that's another passion of mine. It's like, uh, making sure that before I leave thresholds, I don't know that that's gonna happen, but that we move from a fee-for-service system and a payment model that is based on encounters to a payment model that is based on impact. 
and and outcomes as opposed to just output. Well, the good news in that that headline is that I think increasingly we have the tools and resources to build those new systems. I think to your point earlier, it's disrupting the status quo of old systems at the sociological power centers and the, the misaligned financial incentives kind of gets in the way but the uh, you know point of fact we have a behavioral health crisis in this country and if, and if left unattended or if, if we keep following the same playbook we have followed for decades we are looking down the barrel of an entirely different society in the united states in 20 years 30 years not, not just the city of chicago i think communities throughout the country and it's gonna take, I think, bold community-level leadership that knows this work, understands what resources are required to take those social and medical complexities head on, and then build systems around the support of that that aren't just singularly focused on isolated social instances, but really do look at the person as a whole mm -hmm. um, and, yeah. and wraps them up in the supports needed to, to help them live their best lives. Yeah, I mean, we've been very focused in this conversation on the important but very narrow work that Thresholds does. So, I mean, I am so proud of it. We are a niche player in the mental health system, right? I mean, I think it's going to expand as we become CCBHCs beyond Chicago and and McHenry, and hopefully in the next five years, we will have CCBHCs or centers for wellness throughout our portfolio from Kankakee to the South Side to Blue Island. And, you know, my dream is that and I said this to the deputy secretary of HHS when, when she was out here a couple of weeks ago, we should be moving toward CCBHCs for thresholds writ large, not location by location by location, you know, figure out how the whole entity is certified as a certified behavioral health clinic and so that we don't create disparities. And what I'm so worried about with the way that CCBHC is set up right now is that you create disparities you know, do we want to have better, more comprehensive services in Ravenswood and McHenry and less in Kankakee and right. the South Side? But, you know, that's how the system is set up. And that's that's just not, it's not tenable for me. I talk all the time about one thresholds. I want, no matter where you live, you deserve access to the same quality housing, the same quality services. So this is a big, big undertaking. And, but we've not had a conversation on it. It might not be the time to do it. Is that sort of the, I would say, the mental health, behavioral health, emotional health crisis in this country, in the city and in this country. It's really all of us, right? This challenge is not just about the most acute needs and the most acute population. I mean, I, you see it everywhere. You see it in the workforce, you see it in the community, you see it manifested through violence in our communities. You see it in schools where kids are really, really struggling, families. I mean, it's just it's just so deep and so pervasive, you know, and it's all understandable. I mean, we, we are coming out of the worst pandemic of our lifetime, probably. We are witnessing, at least on social media, a war in Europe. We are experiencing the degradation of democracy nationally and internationally, where truth and lies are interchanged and not 
acknowledge that there's actually a difference between what is true and what is a lie. People acting out, people going down the expressway at 95 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone with no regard. So I just feel like, and you know, the Surgeon General talks about this all the time. He talks about the crisis of mental wellness in this country, and he's done a lot of work recently around children. There was a wonderful piece that he did recently in the New York Times, Dr. Murthy did on loneliness. I don't know if you've seen that piece. And he's been talking a lot about loneliness and that, you know, one of my heroes is a woman named Dorothy Day from the Catholic worker movement decades ago. She's always been a hero of mine, and she wrote a book years ago called The Long Loneliness. I don't know exactly how it ends, but there's something near the end of the very last sentence is about like the only way that we can confront the epidemic of loneliness is through love, and that the only way we can achieve love is through community. I'm paraphrasing her, and I probably got it all wrong, but it's loneliness which can be solved through love, which can only be solved through community. And I think Vivek Murthy and others talk about this all the time. You know, we we have to recreate healthy communities. You know, it's not just about healthy individuals, and it is about healthy individuals, but it's about community response and people being in community. And, you know, you use the word belonging. There's just too many people that don't feel like they belong. Everything from social media to, and the list goes on has created this deep loneliness and then it has acted out in in just all the worst ways imaginable so but that's what i think our biggest challenge and opportunity is as a country here is really to address this and you know in addition to all the hard work that we have to do at a place like thresholds that is very (laughs) narrowly focused on the most vulnerable it's so well said it's you know every generation or two in this country since its founding has had a big inflection point that kind of determines what the next 30 to 60 years are going to look like. And of course, you know, there's periods like the post-revolutionary period, the Civil War, and World Wars, and, and Great Depression, all other kinds of things. But this it feels like we are living through a more protracted version of that, but, but this seminal American moment where the world around us is progressing at such a rapid pace but the culture is sick and and it is and it is stuck. It's kind of mired and, and doesn't know how to interact with, assimilate to, uh, leverage the, the incredible things going on around us. And it's because the systems and structures are also mired in a in the 1960s, 70s, 80s kind of ethos and, and mindset. And I mean that both philosophically and systemically. And it will be to our collective detriment if we do not figure out how to heal the culture and and restore that sense of community in a way that lifts people up. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and reactivates, reanimates our our compassion for those around us, whether we know them or not. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was I was asked a question yesterday. Somebody uh, was interviewing me and asking. You know about we were talking about homelessness and and she said it's been recommended to me that i should never give a dollar or two to anybody on the street because they're just gonna take that money and buy more alcohol or buy more drugs and yeah. you know there's got to be better ways and, and she said well what do you suggest and all i could think of is i just said you know you got to follow your heart if you're walking by somebody and you think that two or three dollars and giving to them on the street is going to get them a hamburger or you know get them a 
bottle of water, you know, you should do it. And if you think that's not the right thing, then just make sure you show compassion in a different way by donating to an organization that can make a difference. Or if you don't want to do that, then think about what you can do politically or electorally, you know, to help change the system. So it made me just think that you just got to do something. And I think those of us that have more resources and more resilience, more privilege, probably is how I would describe it for like me, and are surrounded by goodness and love, that we have like a deeper, more urgent responsibility to share that. So I think while there's so much challenge at thresholds and in the community and all the stuff that we described, I also witness every day like so much goodness all around and people helping each other out, people making gifts and donations to places like Thresholds and others that just blow me away. I'm thinking, wow, so much love and so much generosity from somebody I don't even know. And, you know, in the work that I do both at Thresholds and outside of Thresholds is like very focused on what you just said, like what can I do to lift other people up? So I've been so focused on trying to identify the next generation of leaders, uh, especially young women and men of color, and how to make sure that they have access to opportunity through you know, membership in the Economic Club of Chicago or into Leadership Greater Chicago or through work that I'm doing with the Urban League Board. And I just think that if every single person just tried to do one or two things <laughs> every single day or at least once or twice a week, the multiplier effect would just be so enormous. So. Again, you know, I, I, I probably sound so Pollyanna when I think or talk about this, but I just believe we have so much ability to change the story. To your point, Thresholds serves a very unique and special population. And I think often, though, as you were expanding and we look at the sort of global crisis that we have on our hands, it's like, yes, there is a very unique population that has very special needs. And you are 100% achieving that through the wraparound support for mental and physical support. But your neighbor, your colleague, all of us have experienced a trauma. You know, we've all been through the pandemic, but then I think that to the story about do you give a dollar to a homeless person, I think that there's so much judgment still that we have to get past and bias of what it means to be homeless, be jobless. Why are you in that situation? A friend of mine was telling me, she was recalling last year that I didn't really realize that her going through a job transition was as challenging for her as someone that would seem like she had it together. Right. But you're judging yourself so much harder and we don't realize that and we don't realize that there are a lot of other combated things and she was going through a tragedy in her family so I mean it's just all those things that we just need to step back and do exactly what you said we need to have empathy we need to be loving and we need to be more considerate that even as we talk to our people trying to solve health care issues you know it's not just like just go lose weight and then you get rid of your diabetes there's a mental component to that of what is going on that they are eating more or whatever and it could also be physiological but I'm just trying to say that it's not this or that it's going to require a much more integrated approach and we have to allow ourselves to recognize to your point that our brains are part of the body and we need to take care of the whole body and we have to be meeting people where it's comfortable whether that's in your home whether that's on the street wherever it is 
consumers are driving this market. And if it's an app, then then so be it, you know? That's right, yeah. <laughs> well, and what you said just reminded me of something. One of my heroes in the space here in Chicago that does this work, especially around child resiliency and child well-being, is a woman named Dr. Colleen Cicchetti. You may know her from, the, from Lurie Children's and Northwestern. She says, again, I'm paraphrasing her probably wrong, like I paraphrased Dorothy Day wrong, but she says something to the effect that like we can't mental health system our way out of this mental health crisis. Even with a hundred thresholds and great places like us, we can't do it and nor should we try to do this alone. Creating resilience and mental well-being requires all of us. This is not something that's on the mental health care system or the health care system, but it requires private employers, it requires schools, it requires churches and mosques and community groups and park districts. And families. Oh, and families, for sure, right. Individuals and families. But it really, it will take the sum of us as individuals and institutions to collectively work on this. Because to think that a therapist or a counselor or an outreach worker is going to solve all of these problems that we face we just can't do it. It can't so, be a spectator sport. That's right. It cannot be a spectator sport. Or expect anybody else to do it, you know. Yeah. Somebody said to me recently, well, you know, you understand mental health, but I don't have any connection to mental health or substance abuse. And I said, well, let, why don't you just think about it for maybe just one minute. Is there anybody in your family that has suffered from depression and anxiety? Is there anybody in your family that has ever used or misused a substance or alcohol? And then, of course, when they think about this for five minutes, they're like, oh, well, of course, you know. So, I mean, I always say that these challenges are, they're not one degree of separation from any of us. They are, we are either living with these challenges or somebody we love is living with this challenge or somebody next door to us is living with this. And when we then, when we realize that this is really about all of us, then all of us have to participate in the solutions. I am grateful that the pandemic is where it is today, like mostly over, and hopefully there will not be another pandemic in the winter of 2024, like oh, many <laughs> like many risk analysts are saying that there may be. But we need to be together. We need to see each other. We need to expand our collective sense of belonging. And we just have to love each other a whole hell of a lot more. And if you don't use the word love, use the word compassion, use the word kindness, use the word empathy. But we need a lot more of that. And we're going to get a little bit closer to solving a lot of these problems that we talked about today. <laughs> The HC3 Podcast is a production of Third Horizon Strategies. Associate producers are Megan Phillip and Topher Rasmussen. Executive producer is David Smith. The music is by Don Finter. Help others find our show by leaving a review and a comment. For more information about the Healthcare Council of Chicago, please visit our website, www.hc3.health, or drop an email to meghanmegan at hc3.health. Lastly, we want to express our appreciation to the incredible community organizations who have tirelessly devoted themselves to the betterment of the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois. We'll see you next time.